0: Gross Point Blank is brought to you by GameTime, your new go-to app for the best deals in last-minute tickets. Did you know MMA ticket prices tend to drop right before the event starts? GameTime tracks ticket prices in real time from thousands of trusted sellers, then shows you all the best last-minute deals, with prices up to 60% off. More than 12 million fans have downloaded the GameTime app and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. I'm not sure how many tickets are left for UFC 244, uh, there are probably some, if they are, they're on Game Time. I would highly recommend checking them out there. It's easy to check out. Two taps and you're done. You're at the event. You're good to go. So head to the App Store or Play Store now to download GameTime and score awesome deals on last-minute tickets. Welcome to Gross Point Blank. I am Josh Gross, joining you every week on The Athletic talking about the world of mixed martial arts, and uh, we have a big show for you this week. Of course, we're going to preview UFC 244 at Madison Square Garden this weekend, November 2nd. The BMF championship fight, if you want to call it that, and a lot of people are calling it that, and the UFC made a belt for it. Nate Diaz manifesting belts out in this world, taking on George Mosfedal in the main event. It's a heck of a card. Uh, we will preview it here in the final segment. Uh, we're going to talk to David Tank Abbott today. Who I think most people would agree was the first BMF in UFC history. I mean, uh, he he probably. I, I'm, well, I'm curious to hear what he has to say about all this. Quite honestly, because he was a guy that just did it, and he was on his own person, and he could be surly, and he could be mean and angry, but he also had a charm about him. You know, the whole BMF thing. I think is people have tried to determine like what what is that? What does that mean? The the baddest motherfucker in the UFC, right? That's For for Nate Diaz, and this is something that I I wrote about uh, this week, kind of like the origins of where this kid came from, this 15-year-old rolling around fighting these guys like Jake Shields and obviously his brother Nick and Gilbert Melendez and Randy Spence and all these guys who were trying to figure out up in the Bay Area and Stockton and Pleasant Hill, California, these group of fighters around the year 2000, 2001, you know, seeing, seeing a future in mixed martial arts and getting in a room and, and scrapping and fighting and trying to claw their way and, and make a career of themselves and really just sort of doing it out of camaraderie and everything else. But the idea of the baddest, I, th- I think it depends on who you are and what your perspective is. Um, for Nate, I think a lot of ways it was about who's the, who's the toughest in the room, who's doing it the right way. Who's the person that I need to watch to learn from? That was that was kind of the encompassing idea of what the baddest was. But I, I think for other people like George mospital you know, baddest takes on different connotations, and that's the interesting thing for me because people hear this and they put their own interpretation of what it means, and none of it is wrong, really. It's 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 all sort of this notion of this is someone not to screw around with. This is someone who keeps it real. This is someone who can attract an audience in some ways like a, a bit of a pop culture not icon necessarily, but but someone who can grab onto that that, that people want to sort of attach themselves to but they're not sure of. there's a tension, there's some unease. I, I think I think all of this is encompassing that and it's in a lar- a large way, I think if you're going to think about it, BMF is what the UFC has always represented and, and it's kind of amazing to see this now expressed. In a fight like this that was inspired by Nate Diaz, who's always lived along with his brother in their own way, under their own terms. Um, Pretty neat thing. And there's not a lot of fighters ever in the history of the UFC, right? I mean, ever. Think about it. How many fighters can you think of that competed in the UFC that could have demanded this kind of situation and for the UFC to capitulate it and say, you know what? This is a great idea. And not only is a great idea. We're we're gonna go all out. We're, we're gonna go all out. We're gonna make a belt, right? We're we're gonna actually like market a show around. We're gonna trademark a phrase. Buffalo Wild Wings is gonna have BMF wings. Like, like this is uh this is kind of an amazing thing that has come out of the mind of Nate Diaz. Um if you haven't checked out the stuff that we're putting out this week on the Athletic, I hope you do, because there's a ton on you know the sort of the idea of this bout, the genesis of the bout, the people involved. Some great material on Nate, great material on George. Um, you know, and, jo- and George is certainly someone who fits this mold. Uh, if you remember the early days, the the street fights, the the Kimbo Slice uh, affiliation. You know, the boat yards and, and the bare knuckle. And and for him now to have this moment, and for how for for Nate to call him out in the way that he did. Some of it was like manifested like it was a thought in Nate's head. Some of it was like pure in the moment inspiration. Who knows where it comes from? Except I think all the foundation who's been sort of laid over the years, right? Um, but here we are, the BMF belt. Um, again, we're going to talk to Tank Abbott because he is, I think, someone who can identify with this idea as much as anybody. In fact, he was the first bad boy in the UFC, really. Uh, he was someone who took no shit, did what he wanted, was a giant star for the UFC. Do you remember when Tank Abbott was on Friends? Tank Abbott was on Friends. Do you remember that? Uh, This was, I think, 97. He he was like a major piece of the episode, along with the UFC. Uh, So, you know, it kind of like, it's not just enough to be a great fighter. And the the BMF idea is not about tactics. Nate Diaz can be a tactical fighter. George Mosvital can be a tactical fighter. But this fight in this moment is not about that. And I think you hear that in guys like Leon Edwards and others who are saying, oh, this is just two guys with lots of losses and the UFC kind of made a belt and it's all about marketing and they're not the best fighters. Kamar Usman, oh, you know, well, I, I'm the best fighter. But the thing is that it's not just about being the best fighter in this context. That's important, but there's a lot of other pieces to it. Later this week, uh, I'm taping this on Thursday, uh, I'm working on a, on a piece kind of having fun with the idea. Like a a 32-man. So for me, uh, over the years, the ultimate expression of, like, you're the baddest were these old-school vale-tudo 32-man tournaments. Those things existed on one night, okay? They existed. The IVCs, the events in Russia, you know, people like Igor Volchanchin, shoot, Alex Stiebling in 2001 won a tournament like this in Brazil. So I, I, I chose one fighter, Who I thought in their calendar year was what I would qualify as the BMF, and then there's let's see, so that's uh, how many how many years? That's 26 fighters because we're from '93 to 2019 is 26, and then I chose another six wild card card fighters, right? So 32 overall, paired them off, going to write a piece, kind of have fun with it. Who's the who's the pound for pound BMF goat? If if that's enough, not enough acronyms for you, I don't know what what is, but uh, that's something we got. Um, And then we have more serious stuff, obviously, um, you know, trying to understand the genesis of these people, the moments that they shared in the gyms to make them this way, who they are in life, Uh, and then currently what's happening. I mean, obviously, there was a big storyline. This fight didn't almost happen, right? Uh, A week ago at this time, everybody's like, oh, I can't wait for the BMF title. And then, boom, all of a sudden, oh, no, Nate Diaz is out there on social media saying, hey, hey, dummies, like, I don't do steroids. What is this? What is this test? And it just so happened during this period, I was working on a story about the UFC's anti-doping policy, and it just sort of came to, came to fruition all at the same time. So also on The Athletic, and something, a piece that I wrote, um, that if you want to understand what happened with Nate Diaz and what's going on with this anti-doping policy and the revisions that are coming, and the notion that when fighters test positive, it, it, it's not necessarily a situation anymore, it used to be, not a situation anymore where you can simply say, oh, you're responsible for what's in your body. Now, think about that. Think about how um, altering that is. That that That's an earthquake in the idea of what drug testing represents, not just in the UFC, but at large, okay? Okay. I don't want to get too deep into the details. The, uh, go, Luke Thomas did a, a great thing on social media. I think it's on YouTube, really explaining this idea of strict liability. So strict liability essentially is saying um, you are responsible for your actions and anything that comes as a consequence of those actions. And that's always been the bottom line um piece of how these doping cases are measured, especially inside WADA, inside USADA, that this is it, right? Some state athletic commissions, state of Nevada is this way, um, where if it's in your system, you are responsible and you shall pay the price. Well, the fact of the matter is now that the technology and testing is so refined, is so good that they are picking up trace elements, trace levels of these substances that are banned, Okay either in competition, out of competition, they are banned, prohibited substances, but they are picking them up at such a minute level that they carry no performance-enhancing effect. And in fact, a fighter doesn't even have to have taken them with the purpose of doping for them to show up. You, me, everybody listening to this may very well likely have banned substances in our system because according to experts, according to experts like uh, Daniel Eichner, who runs the laboratory in Salt Lake City, which is a WADA accredited laboratory, which all the drug testing for USADA basically undergoes, either that or the laboratory here at UCLA in Los Angeles. They're saying, look, if you're taking prescription medication, forget supplements. Obviously, the supplement industry is unregulated. It's crazy. Anything can happen. You're bringing in these bulk supply chains from China. You have these laboratories that mix these ingredients together. Anything can happen in that supply chain that makes for a contaminated supplement. Okay. But we're talking about, like, a regulated industry like prescription medication. Prescription medication, stuff that people take on a regular basis, are showing up with trace elements of banned substances because the testing is now so good that they can get down to the picogram level. And we've heard so much about picograms with John Jones, right? But it's important to understand just how minute. It's, like, almost hard to wrap your mind around how small that is, okay? Okay. We're talking like Ant Man levels of small, where it's like quirks and like like these things that you know exist, but it's impossible to measure. So, what the idea now is, Nate Diaz, you know he's an organic guy, right? He's a vegan guy, and I, and you never want to say, oh, someone would never dope because they come off a certain way. But I had a hard time imagining Nate Diaz taking substances that he knew were prohibited. This is kind of runs against. Everything that Nate and his brother have said that they are for, have lived for, have expressed not only publicly, but that the people who like know them best. Right. Again, that doesn't mean that they didn't do it or wouldn't do it, but it just felt so unlikely. And it turns out that the supplements he's taking. He says he gets them from Whole Foods or wherever he gets them, contain banned substances, it's a SARM, right? Which is now a term that we have to know because, you know, these these things, it's like osterine. You know, the, these these substances that have performance enhancing effect. Some people take them to cheat. Most people haven't. They've just showed up in supplements. Lots of cases. Tom Lawler, Josh Barnett, Yol Romero. Okay. So now Nate Diaz gets caught up in this the week before this major fight's supposed to happen. Oh my God. And he's out there screaming about it publicly. You know, he was never found to have an adverse finding. The, the thing with this issue is you get so deep into the weeds and people get lost in it. And it goes down to that idea of, well, if it's in your system, you did it. And I know over the years that I certainly, um, uh, I ascribed to that as well. I said, well, you got to be responsible for what's in your system. And it turns out now that the science is saying, well, even if you're being responsible right even if you're taking every precaution possible it still may show up now it may show up at levels that we know don't enhance anything and it may show up at levels that if we have your biological passport and we can check data points and we know that you didn't have it in your system here and you didn't have it in your system here but this one pops up well maybe that indicates that it's not because of a doping history it's something else these these this is why with the John Jones issue i you know people were screaming left and right and i was saying hold on lots of shades of gray here these are all shades of gray and they're very difficult to color in and very difficult to understand some things we know you can't have you can't have EPO in your system right we know that you can't have synthetic testosterone in your system and some of these things are obvious just plain as day okay a lot of it is not and now that, that was the Nate Diaz situation and it came out, and Nate had his two cents on social media, and all of a sudden, USADA comes out, and it, it sounds like they're reversing their policy, but that's not how it went down. Uh, I would I would ask you to go read my story if you really want to understand sort of what the process was and the thinking of this. It's been ongoing inside the UFC. They've had, according to Jeff Nowitzki, who runs the anti-doping program for the UFC, he's a UFC employee, and he's paid by the UFC, but you know he is someone with a reputation for being in this world, and he is. Uh, uh, there's a lot of people who don't like him, no question about it. But he's the guy running that program, okay? And, and he says, "Look, we've administered over or close to thirteen thousand tests under this program, this UFC anti-doping program. We've sanctioned about a hundred fighters. Now others have tested positive, but whatever. They've sanctioned about a hundred. About half of those are contaminant cases. Okay." So it, it's a, it's almost a shocking number. And it, it requires, I think, people to really sort of sit here and think about it and understand what all of this means and how it's playing out. Because, and as Jeff Nowitzki said, not to me, to the California State Athletic Commission on October 15th. I was there. I was in the room. He said, this idea of strict liability no longer Really works. It no longer works for what we want to do, for how we want to measure fighters, how we want to hold people accountable for their actions. It no longer works to say if it's in your system, you're guilty. And it comes down to so many layers of testing and protocol and really getting down to intention. And it sounds like we're getting to the point now where this policy is evolving in a good way, right? In a good way. Um, I have certainly been someone who has said over the years that if you test and you test positive and it's obvious that you're doping, that you shouldn't be fighting in the UFC. That you shouldn't be allowed to do that. If the UFC is going to tell us that these things are bad and they don't want anything to do with it, and they still say that, they still say that their goal is to catch cheaters, then those people shouldn't be in the UFC, period. But there's a lot of people now caught up in this web, this contaminant web. And Nate Diaz was that guy. amazingly Um, but here we are USADA figured it out Nate figured it out everybody's good New York State Athletic Commission figured it out and this fight is on this fight is on this BMF fight is on and I think a lot of people are happy for it certainly Nate Diaz is coming off again as like the anti-hero fighting up to the establishment the man right it's it's the Nate Diaz story Uh, and it kind of all fits together perfectly someone who understands that idea fighting the man fighting everybody really uh, the first bad dude in the UFC, Tank Abbott. Uh, he, uh, he more than anyone, I think, understands what this is all about. And uh, I look forward to chatting with him about that on the other side. I am Josh Gross. You're listening to Gross Point Blank. And welcome back to Gross Point Blank. Of course, we're talking about a big fight week in Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's the BMF belt. And I thought, who better to talk about being a bad motherfucker in the UFC than Tank Abbott, who was the original bad motherfucker, if he wants to call himself that. I'm calling himself that. A lot of people have over the years. And he's joining us over the phone now. Tank, are you still in Huntington Beach? Where are you these days? Yeah, uh, still sitting here in Huntington Beach uh, from the beginning. Are are you the original bad motherfucker in the UFC?
1: Uh, that's for other people to decide. But uh, sure, I think so also. If I was a voting person, I'm a, a man that's willing to get in there at anytime, uh, anywhere for anything. The cliche there or the proverb: anytime, anywhere, anytime, whatever it is. That's me. Well, what do you
0: think about this marketing idea that the UFC is putting forward? They've actually made a belt, this BMF belt, for Nate Diaz and George Mosvadall. What do you? What's your thought on that?
1: Well, it's just like a, a lot of the modern day UFC things—they make belts and everything else. And I'm not really into belts or what have you. You just—I'm into fighting. And uh, if you know whatever you want to do uh, a BF, whatever belt—that's um, up to them, I guess. But uh, you know, it seems like these two guys have the right attitude, uh, and they like to fight. So if that's uh, a sliver off of the main belt, which really what's the melt the belts about anymore. Anyways, there's weight classes and that, but, uh, so, you know, if they want to make up a belt like that, that's good for them, I guess.
0: Yeah. It's, um, it's half marketing, half real. I mean, I, I think, I think this idea has existed in the UFC from the very beginning, but for many people, you were the man who personified that. Um, you but you never played a part right tank i mean you, what what people saw was was you or or were you playing a role because you know there was some no. pro wrestling in your background as well what, what what were people seeing when when you were doing your thing yeah no i'm
1: i'm 100% real the whole time uh i've always been ready to throw down I you know it's i was fighting in the streets forever and uh actually just got out of jail at the time for beating up somebody And these fights that I got into back in those days, everybody wanted to fight on the street. It wasn't like I was uh, some intimidating looking guy, but I was more than welcome to, to step up if you wanted to. And he had a smart mouth and, uh, I would stand right next to you and say, let's do it to it. Um, so it's it's hundred percent me. I've always been this way. I don't don't. Uh, it wasn't a big deal back in those days to get in a fight at a bar or at an intersection or anything like that. It just happened, and uh, whatever happened happened, and uh, you took you licked your wounds and drove off and fight another day. Um, Nowadays, things are a little bit uh, different. You know, it's, um, it's now it's going back to this BF baddest motherfucker deal. I mean, it seems like it's coming full circle. Like you said, there's marketing going on and then things like that. And, uh, well, at least they're getting back to the roots of what it used to be when uh, everybody would fight and uh, it wasn't about uh, belts and what you looked like and what you knew. Was just about fighting and having the right attitude, not marketing.
0: When you stepped into the UFC July 14th, nineteen ninety five, did you have any real sense for what you were walking into?
1: Oh yeah. I, I you know, I, I saw what was on TV and uh I thought to myself, um Oh, man, this can't be real. This has got to be some kind of professional wrestling kind of thing. And I remember, uh, so I was watching it. I was one of the few people that that got it from the pay-per-view. I was working at a liquor store at the time when I was going through college. And uh, I remember looking through a Playboy magazine, and they had an ad in there. And I go, oh, I'm going to have to check this out. And I think I had a pirated Cable box type thing at the time, so I watch a fight and I go, "Wow, this this is real." I gotta I gotta get into this. And as uh, many twists and turns happened in my life at that time, uh, I ended up getting in front of Art Davie, and um, he told me at the time that he had somebody that wanted to fight that was over three hundred pounds, and I had just gotten out of jail for fighting so i showed up in his office with a uh, grocery bag with uh high top basketball shoes a shirt and uh shorts that you know if they got bloody or ripped that i didn't care about and i went in there and said okay you know what's going on i want to do this show and he's like um what's in the bag? And I go, you said you had some six foot eight, 300 pound guy for me to fight. And, uh, you know, I'm here to fight. I didn't change any of these things. He goes, you'd fight for free. I go right out there in the lawn. I don't care. And he's like, oh my God, you're crazy. And I'm like, well, whatever. So then after that, you know, I, I previously seen the Tooth fly out of the Samoan guy, and I go, I want to go see it. So I went and saw it in uh, well I think it was in Carolina somewhere. And uh, from then on, I was in, and I showed up, and I was like, uh, okay. And you know, when I went and saw the show that before I went to my first show, I believe it was USC five. All the guys there were—they were all scared, and they were all like living an act, kind of like sometimes today, they they have an idea of what people are supposed to be like, like um, like a professional wrestler. So they started acting like, "Oh, let me tell you something," and it was the same thing with the fighting. And um, but they all had this little look on their face—an unsure look. Like, they didn't know what they, maybe like, oh, my God, I shot my mouth off and got into something I really don't want to do. And uh, I was the opposite. I was like, hey, man, I'm not going to jail. I get a fight for free. This is going to be fun. And uh, so there I was. I showed up. And uh, everybody got to see what happened.
0: Yeah, no question. The knockout of John Matua is legendary, and your fight with Paul Varlins, who I imagine is the six foot eight, three hundred and fifty pound guy, Art Davy was talking about. Uh, uh, probably.
1: probably. I have no idea.
0: There, there were yeah. some big ones along the way, and then you run into Oleg Doktorov, who's obviously a very bad man himself. Who, who was the toughest guy you ever fought, Tank?
1: Oh man, They're all, all fights are tough, and all the guys that get into the cage. You know, back in the days in the single-digit UFC guys, everybody was there to fight three times in one night. And, uh, you know, there's a little, what, a, a smear on his record fighting Anthony Messias and him, him basically admitting the Anthony Messias guy, the buddy dude, said that his manager promoter guy told him to take a fall so oleg would be fresh because oleg had to win the thing for their their group of people that they had and at the time i wasn't uh alerted to the politics of the time so oleg was fresh when i fought like you said uh, matua and varlins well over 300 pounds each and uh he got Pretty much to skate all the way through to the finals and fight me, so really wasn't a fair fight. I don't, I don't complain about it, but just because he was fresh and I had already had two fights with me, he, he was a tough fight. I mean, it lasted 15 minutes or thereabouts, up in altitude, so it was, it was a tough one. Oleg took Tar yeah, off. No, no
0: question no about No taking,
1: it. no taking away from him being a tough man, but. He was fresh, and he didn't have he didn't have to climb the mountain I had to to get to that point.
0: You would have fought anyone for free, and you did. When did it occur to you that you could actually make money, and that was nice too, that that, that was a good thing?
1: Oh, I was driving with my mother. <laughs> it's kind of strange. She's not with us anymore. But uh, these kids cut, or she might have cut them off, Driving badly. And so they were kids, but they were my age area. And they were flipping the car off, and I'm yelling at my mom, Go! I was seeing red because they were, you know, addressing my mother. And I go, Okay, at the stoplight. And she hit the child lock thing so I couldn't get out of the car, which is probably appropriate. And she sat there and goes, David is it worth you to get out of this car and beat up these guys and the car in front of you for a million dollars? Is it, is it worth that? And back in those days, a million dollars was a million dollars. And I sat back in the chair and let, let it go. But it kind of struck a chord in my head as it's time to, uh, clean up your act and, uh, live accordingly. And that had was you already been point. in the
0: UFC at this point?
1: Yes, I had. And uh, that's why she said the million-dollar thing actually, you know, it was a, a viable thing at the point in time. So that was an early lesson to me to, to just look the other way and ignore these people. Everybody came out of the woodwork after I fought in that show, UFC 6. It was kind of weird. It was all these guys that I knew from growing up coming up to me, acting, telling me how to fight. Number one, they'd never been in a fight in their life. And number two, what they would have done and how to beat like Hoist Gracie and all these people. And I'm like, going, when did any of you guys ever thought you were tough? And why are you talking to me about it? Because I would have kicked your ass. at the drop of a hat back then, now you're going to tell me how to do things. It was a strange uh, occurrence.
0: Uh, things have changed so much um, in the game of mixed martial arts. It's, it's not the kind of fighting that I think we saw early in the days. But people also mistake the early days for having no skill. There was a lot of skill involved in the early days. It just wasn't as combined and cohesive as we see it. Today, do you? That's my opinion, at least. Do you? Do you agree with that? That it? Oh, yeah. uh,
1: Wholeheartedly, you know, I, I, I can't really say this without saying anything. But I wrestled since I was nine years old, and wrestling is my passion. And I've wrestled with world elite wrestlers, and I held my own with all of them. And. um, You know, not just a sloppy takedown or a lucky takedown here and there. Banged with these people many times and held my own back and forth. And So, you know, I was at that level of wrestling. And um, I actually did five years in the boxing gym after wrestling with junior college. And I got in a car accident messed my knee up. So I ended up going into the boxing gym to satisfy my lust for combat and uh you know i spent my i paid my dues in the boxing gym it wasn't like this mma boxing gyms nowadays it was old school rocky balboa stuff um with the old man trainers that were a wealth of knowledge in the sweet science as they call it and uh i uh, took a beating but i st- you know, I took a I took a bunch of wrestlers that I knew into the boxing gym, and after they eat a, a few boxing gloves, they never came back. But uh, I went into the boxing thing thinking that I was gonna go into professional boxing, and then I got to see how corrupt it is and set up it is, and I was it left a bad taste in my mouth. But I I wanted to do it so. Then the UFC came along and I said, voila, something is here that I can do that is not so a business. And it was at the ground floor at the time and uh, there was not these belts and all this stuff. And, you know, whatever happened to having tournaments, you know, if you guys are such badass guys nowadays, you guys can have a tournament they should have the baddest motherfucker tournament where you fight three times in one night. And it seems like the guys that are fighting this Diaz guy and this Ms. Devell are, um, are the kind of guys that would cherish something like that. They would fight that, but, uh, they, they watered it down for the current champions and the guys that probably wouldn't want to do that. They kind of put, uh, training wheels on, on the sport, if you will, it watered it down from the, the purest form it was. And, uh, that's my take.
0: What, uh, what did you think of the ESPN 30 for 30? Did you have a chance to watch it on Tito Ortiz and Chuck Liddell? You, you were featured prominently in that. I, I was a voice in that. I talked a lot about you and, and your influence on Tito in that documentary. Um, what was your takeaway from that?
1: Yeah, you know, um, I thought it was a, a good show. Um, I you know whatever a little bit there. But, um, you know, at least they accurately showed that um, case in point of a, of a fighter that they built up and made belts for and gave easy fights just to build the show up. I mean, the, the one fighter – sat around he really didn't do anything he's not very talented um he's better than the average joe but so then you have to build him up falsely i mean he's for his accolades he did, really doesn't have the talent behind it where then you had him pinned it against an, another fighter that really didn't care about the accolades or the the hoopla of it all and running around calling himself a champion and all that kind of stuff. And they, they pitted those two guys together and it is what it is. So it was pretty accurately um, portrayed. I mean, you can obviously tell that fighter was made up totally that, that guy is a total made up uh, fighter. And, that's what is a, a big part of it today where you had a real fighter uh, uh, another guy that just fought on his merits and for the love of the fight and they showed that and you know they went into who's who and what's what and the real persons and you can tell the fakes and the phonies and uh, to, next to the real guys and that's what they did so I thought it Conveyed that well.
0: You you don't like Tito Ortiz.
1: No, not at all. I've, I he... think it's I think it's very been gone over many many times. Yes, and uh, it's um, he's just not a good person, and they, if things outside of the uh, uh, octagon are what really makes my disdain for him prominent um but what he's done on on inside the octagon is all given to him
0: it's not earned who who, who's the fighter that you would respect most is there one name that pops up
1: you know i'm crazy about crazy you would have to have a real um Warrior attitude. I, I like Fedor Aminko or Yimianco. Um and then uh, you know Chuck didn't look too bad, and what this Nate Diaz. I don't really know too much about him, but a lot of people uh, tell me that he's he's got the that attitude, and he's he's down for a good fight, and he doesn't really care about the hoopla behind it all, and. Uh, if that's the case, I like him, and uh, you know, the people that are more, the people that prove their metal more than than what other fighters are. Like they fight not for belts, not for this or that. I've I've flown across the nation and fought in a backyard with somebody with no cameras, no lights, and I've. Done that before, even the UFC even came around, kind of the Kimbo Slice kind of things, and uh, there was no belts there. There were no uh, running around saying you're a world champion when you're not really. So, um, those kind of fighters are the ones that I like, and uh, I would leave it at that. There's not Tank, really. How are you- yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. There's not really any names that jump out at me.
0: Understood. How, how are you doing these days? Well-documented with your health issues and your kidney and liver transplants. How, how are you uh, doing? Yeah, I'm actually doing well, you
1: know. this is I I take away your attitude that I think that I'm blessed with. And uh, I take it towards uh, getting my body back in shape. You know, I was down on the table five times and I'm back from that so you know there's I'm back in in the gym and uh, working out uh, lifting and all that kind of stuff and slowly but surely getting out on the mat wrestling around and uh, uh, I plan on you know getting back to a level that's where I need to be you never know
0: what is that for you what does that mean Oh, that
1: just means that uh, I'll be willing to get out at a stoplight and say hello to you.
0: (laughs) Well, I always look forward to saying hello to you. I hope not in the way that you just meant it, but it's always (laughs) nice to see you, Tank. Yes. And uh, we wish you the best. Uh, People, follow Tank Abbott on Instagram. It's tank.abbott.com. You can also, the man is a published author, and I can speak from experience. This is not an easy thing to do. Uh, Tank is, as many fighters have been over the years, a misunderstood man, intelligent man. Second novel coming out, Bar Brawler. Over 1,000 pages. Is that right, Tank?
1: Yeah. uh, Before There Were Rules is a uh, trilogy, and there's three books to it. And the first book is Bar Brawler. The second book is Street Warrior. And the second book's coming out soon. It's got some publishing issues, uh, editing issues with Amazon that are getting ironed out with the editor, Todd Hester. And the third book is Cage Fighter, which is already almost ready to get printed. But yeah, the, all three books is over a thousand pages long. And uh, it's coming out slowly but surely it's been a long process because everything my whole life got put on pause with my health issues. And, uh, but now I'm back pounding away at it on the keyboard. So.
0: That's, that's impressive. I, um, I, one of my quotes that I, I subscribe to and I, I live by sometimes is the easiest thing in the world not to do is write, And to sit down and actually have the discipline to do it like you've done it um, is an impressive thing, and I, I say congratulations on that. I look forward to, to that one and the third one coming out. Um, yes. Tank Abbott was the original bad guy in the UFC, and and not because anyone called him that, but that's because who he was. And uh, sir, we appreciate your time and best of luck to you and best of health. Okay.
1: All right, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and thank you.
0: Thank you, David Tank Abbott from Huntington Beach, folks. We'll be back in the final segment. Talk UFC 244. So you listen to Girls Point Blank. Thanks again to Tank Abbott. Uh, great interview. Appreciate his thoughts. The uh, the original bad guy in the UFC. Uh, no question about that. He wasn't playing a role. That's who he was. Tank Abbott would step out in front of a street sign right now and fight you. The man said so himself. Believe that. Um, to hear the rest of this episode in full, the extended version of every show every week, uh, is on The Athletic. Make sure you subscribe to us. We are, uh, we are worth it. I tell you that. Go to theathletic.com backslash Josh Gross for 40% off on an annual subscription. Um, there are lots lots of reasons to sign up to The Athletic. All right. I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, this was the first free one on iTunes. Uh, pretty big deal. If you like the show, please um, click on it on iTunes. Recommend it. It helps us uh we need that stuff so if you'd be kind enough to do that that would be tremendous and uh again enjoy the fights this weekend we will have reaction next week and hopefully and i expect it to be uh uh, randy couture on the show uh i asked him to come on this week but believe it or not you know randy he was inconvenienced last week he had to have a heart attack or whatever and then he had to walk home but this week he's got a movie to film so he's doing that so next week he's going to be on gross point blank Hopefully. Haven't got that totally confirmed, but that's, that's what it's looking. So if not uh, next week, then hopefully sometime in the future. But uh, always hope that you tune in and appreciate your time, as always. And I am Josh Gross. You've been listening to Gross Point Blank on The Athletic.